Good morning, South Hills. It's so wonderful to have you uh, here with us in present. And for those of you who are joining us online, uh, thank you for being with us. Can I ask you to take your Bibles and turn to uh, Joshua chapter 4? We're in this series about uh, living the legacy, and that legacy being uh, the legacy of Moses and all that has happened. And now uh, with Joshua taking the people into the, the promised land. We want to look at this uh, passage here in in Joshua 4. Joshua 3 and 4 really should be read together, but uh, the length of that uh, doesn't permit us, so um, time isn't going to allow us to do that, so I'm going to amalgamate them uh, for a, a summary. Throughout history, have you noticed that nations have erected memorials or monuments to communicate to future generations significant nation-forming events. As an Australian, the memorial and the monument means a trip for us to Turkey, to a place called Gallipoli. Famous battle in uh, World War I. For an Australian, that pilgrimage is a trip to a nation-forming event. For those who uh, can, can't make that pilgrimage, there's two war memorials in Australia that most kids go to. Because Australia as a nation, its nation-forming event is around a war, World War I. As an American, we take our high school kids or our middle school kids, to Washington, D.C., don't we? And we take a a walk on the mall. And you uh, start at the Capitol building. And you walk down. And as you leave the Capitol building, as you walk down, there's all of the mall museums. They all uh, have uh, significance to the nation. And then you get to the Washington Monument. When you get to the monument and you look to the north, if you're at the monument, it's to the White House. And if you look to the south, it's to the Jefferson Memorial. And then you keep on walking to the reflective pool and to the World War II Memorial. And as you Pass down along the reflective pool to one side, there's the memorial to FDR and to Martin Luther King. And then you get to the Korean War Memorial. And then you get to the memorial of my years, the Vietnam Memorial. And you watch people as they're etching names on that memorial. And then you get to the Lincoln Memorial. And you think about all that has transpired at that memorial. One of the great speeches of American history delivered there. And those memorials evoke all sorts of emotions, they evoke all sorts of memories. They're they're nation-forming. 
And as you get older, you realize the significance of them. And think about the values that they communicate. They're they're powerful in their teaching. Today, we're going to consider another memorial erected millennia ago before all of these modern memorials. They're erected by excited pilgrims who had realized a national dream. They were going to enter the promised land. And the memorial, 12 stones, we're using bricks this morning, but 12 stones for the 12 nations that when curious children asked what did the stones mean, parents and priests and storytellers could remind the kids what the stones mean. Verse 21 of Joshua Joshua chapter 4, he said to the Israelites, in the future, when your descendants ask their parents, or when kids ask their parents, what do the stones mean? Tell them, Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord dried up the Jordan before you until you had crossed over. The Lord your God did to the Jordan what he had done to the Red Sea when he dried it up before us until we crossed over. He did this so all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful and so that you might always fear the Lord your God. When the kids ask, what do the stones mean? As only children can ask. Tell them what God did. Tell them who God is. Remember this moment. You've just realized a 700-year-old dream a dream that had been with the people for 700 years and had been passed on from parent to parent, from priest to priest, from storyteller to storyteller, and it was framing the nation. They remembered two water crossings, one of the Reed Sea or the... And it's remembered by a meal, Passover, And the second crossing of Jordan is remembered by 12 rocks for the 12 tribes of Israel. And it's there so as when children ask, they get to see and they get to hear. The crossing occupies two chapters. Joshua 3, Joshua chapter 4. When you read those two, you expect them to lay out sort of this straightforward plan, a timeline, because we're all Americans. We like things tight, logical, and controlled, don't we? When you read the story, it sort of weaves in and out. It mixes chronology. 
It jumbles up geography. Because there's a point of view that's being tried to be made. This is not because the narrator is inept. Sometimes when people are reading this story and they're trying to figure it all out, they go, there's some inconsistencies here. No, this is a story, and this is a master storyteller telling it. You see, this is an extraordinary event. It's like the crossing of the Reed Sea. And so extraordinary events are told differently by storytellers. You all know that. That's the power of a story. And it's used to heighten the storyline. So let me try and lay it out for you. If you look at this, this is a summary of chapters 3 and, chapter, and the first 14 verses of chapter 4. The obstacle to Israel on this is a river at flood stage. It's, it's harvest time, and the river runs at flood stage in harvest time. That's the obstacle. And what happens here is Joshua lays out a procedure for the people, a procedure that it seems Moses had something to do with when you look at the text. So there's, there's some history to this. They thought about this. And here's how it happens. There's a procession. And the Ark of the Covenant leads the procession. And when it leaves the camp at Shittim, and it moves to the river, crossing close to Jericho, across from Jericho, the Ark of the Covenant and the priests carrying it are to be a thousand yards ahead of everybody else. A little over half a mile. What's the ark? It's the presence of God. Law of God. And as soon as the priest's feet hit the water of the river, it rolls up like a small town after five o'clock. And it backs up all the way to Adam, 16 miles away. I cannot imagine what that wall of water must have been like at Adam. But as soon as the priest puts his foot in the river, it dries up. And it recedes into the Dead Sea. The riverbed had to be muddy. They're going to cross across. And where do the priests and the ark stand? They stand right in the middle of the river. Now think about that. You've got to have pretty high faith, don't you? I'm not sure I'd be standing there. Looking up river just to make sure it was still not coming down. And then the next people in are the representatives of the people. The 12 people who are going to pick up rocks. 
and carry him from the center of the river over to the other side into the promised land. And 40,000 soldiers. So the ark's in the middle with the priests. The 12 representatives come. And Joshua's no dummy. He's got 40,000 troops there right in front. Because they're going to go into the promised land. You want your military in place. Just in case. And then the people start. Two million people crossing from the desert into the promised land. Mathematicians have tried to work out how long that took. If the average person walks at this amount of time, how long will it take? And do they cross in exactly one spot? Does everybody follow everybody across the same path? Or do they spread out along the riverbank? We don't get told that. We just don't get told that. Because this is a miraculous story. It doesn't matter, does it? That's not the point, but we all get stuck on the po- those things. Can you imagine how the first person was as they entered the river? I bet you you put your foot in and you looked. And, and, and you, you, you're trying to check all of this out. You're, you're, you're trying to, to work out what's, uh, what's going on. Because the, the, the ark's there. And it's, 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 it's right there. And the people are coming across. And there's some people who are strutting. And there's some people who are timid. What the text tells us is they hurried across. That seems to make sense, doesn't it? They, they hurried across. And there's two memorials that are erected. There's a memorial of the 12 stones by the 12 representatives. They each pick up one and they tell us that they carried a cross on their shoulders. So they were probably substantive stones. And then Joshua erects another memorial right where the priest stood with the ark in the river. Now, some of the translations make that a little confusing. But our best amalgamation says there were two memorials, one in the promised land and one in the riverbed. The timing of this, it coincides with the calendar for the Exodus. Isn't that interesting? The second river crossing coincides with the first sea crossing. Not by accident. And we're told in verse 14 that God does this to raise up a new Moses. A 
And all of a sudden, the people revered Joshua just like they revered Moses. And he's done it in a very short period of time. And the people are realizing a 700-year-old dream. Sometimes when I've spoken on this text, particularly in the developing world, I'll ask them to reenact it. And so when people come into church, I have them all sit on one side of the building. And everybody's going, what's he up to? And then we move across the building, just like the people of Israel did, to actually experience what that is. And you watch people have aha moments with just that simple exercise. From the land of slavery and wanderings to land of promise and of hope. That's powerful when you've never had hope or promise. You see, what happens here is that when the people look back, as, as they're crossing the land, as they're crossing over, and, and, and they look back, they remember that for 40 years they wandered in the wilderness. And before that, they were in slavery. That was their life. And these people didn't even know about the slavery because those people had to die off. But they heard the stories. Just as some of us heard the stories of our parents about the Depression and about World War II. And not only as they looked back, but as they looked down, they saw this well-worn path where two million people have crossed over this river that had been at flood stage. And they've crossed over on dry land. And even if it was a little muddy when it started, it was certainly dry by the time the last one went over. And some of them had seen the ark enter the river. But a lot more had seen the ark come out of the river. And not only did they look backward, not only did they look down, but they looked forward, and, and forward meant the promised land. None of us have ever hoped for anything for 700 years. We're a relatively new nation who's impatient. But they'd longed for this for 700 years. 700 years of longing. And Joshua's trying to work out how do you remember this? How do you memorialize this? What do you do? And so he takes 12 rocks, one by each of the representatives of the nation, and he takes them into the promised land. 
And he builds an altar, a memorial. And he builds it because he remembers that people forget. Now you go, no one's going to forget this. Yes, they will. Yes, they will. We all forget. We all forget. And so he builds the memorial. He knows that if anything is essential to the meaning of a religious tradition, that is what will be forgotten. Will you let me say that again? If anything is essential to the meaning of a religious tradition, that is what will be forgotten. You say, what do you mean? Think of every college in this country that started from a faith tradition. Most of them have forgotten their roots. It's really easy for us to forget. The biggest danger to faith in this country isn't liberalism. It's not. The biggest danger to faith in this country is neglect and forgetfulness. And history will testify to that. We forget. When the kids naggingly ask, what do the stones mean? Tell them who God is and what God has done. You see, first generations believe, second generations assume, and third generations forget. That's kind of the way it works. The memorial is a visual sermon designed to attract the eyes, not only the ears, and to remind us who God is and what God's done. They're a way to communicate your, your personal experience. They were kind of your stake in the ground. It was at this place at this time that I saw God and I understood who God was and what he's doing. And this is my stake. I remember how I felt. I remember what I saw. I remember what I did. That's the stake. Do you have a memorial that does that for you? Or it was, secondly, it was a way to communicate to future generations. On the tenth day of the first month, the people went up from Jordan and camped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And Joshua set up at Gilgal the twelve stones that he'd taken out of Jordan. And he said to the Israelites, in the future, when your descendants ask their parents, what do the stones mean? Tell them that Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the Jordan before you 
until you had crossed over. The Lord your God did to the Jordan what he'd done to the Reed Sea when he dried it up before us until we had crossed over. He did this so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful and so that you might always fear the Lord your God. It was a way, this memorial, to communicate to younger generations what God did. Because Joshua knew this, that younger people, because of their curiosity and because of their hearts and because they haven't been jaundiced, are more open to faith. It's why we invest a lot in children and youth, because they're wide open to faith. They're receptive to it. So tell them what the stones mean. Tell them what they mean. Tell them. Remember what you saw and did and tell them. Live it out. Embody it. And the memorial was also a way to communicate to a lost world what faith is. Biblical faith involves two things. Revelation and response. Revelation about who God is and what God has done. In the Old Testament, it's about deliverance by pass in Passover out of Egypt and and in the promised land. In the New Testament, it's about what Jesus Christ did on the cross for our redemption. Who God is. Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who's coming again in power and great glory. Do you believe that, South Hills? That's who he is. That's biblical faith. And because of your wholehearted response to that, your allegiance to that, you are born again to a living hope. That's biblical faith. It's revelation, the cross, response, wholehearted devotion to it. Not because we did anything, but because God did everything. When they walked over that river, they walked over not because of them, but because of his miraculous provision, didn't they? When you got redeemed, it was because of his miraculous provision. That's what this is about. When your children ask you, what do the stones mean? Tell them who God is and what God did. Remind them that it's really easy to forget. And you mustn't forget. You mustn't forget. And this is your stake place. This is where you drove your stake. This is your faith commitment. Here's my question to you, church. What's the memorials that you have erected to God? To remind you about who God is and what he's done in your life. 
Do you have them? Or to put it another way, where did God roll back the waters for you? Where did he transform you? Where did he provide for you? What was your river crossing? I've come to realize that um, memorials come in all sorts of shapes and sizes. TJ constructed this for me this week. He said, Paul, there's your altar. These sorts of things have power because they're visual sermons. They speak to the eyes. And we retain more what we see. But when you've got it, you see it and you hear it, it's powerful. Memorials can be places. Do you have places in your life? For me, there's three. One's a windswept cemetery by the Great Southern Ocean. It's a beautiful spot. It's where my mother's buried. It was because of her I'm here. It was her faith that was transmitted to me. And my faithfulness has very much to do with her faithfulness. It's powerful. So on my yearly pilgrimage home, I go to the little cemetery. By the way, there's a great beach just beyond it. I have two things that happen. I get to see her and I get to go swimming in the great southern ocean. Second place is in Japantown in San Francisco. Our first son was six, years, was six months old when he had his first heart surgery. Between six and seven months, he had ended up having three heart surgeries, or two heart surgeries and a heart catheterization. One of the, UC San Francisco, and then at Kaiser in, in San Francisco. And the person who uh, did the surgery used to be the thoracic surgeon at Harvard. God provided the best for us. And after his surgery, my wife and I wandered down into a curio store in Japantown. And we came across a little thing that just made flatulent noises. (laughs) And we roared laughing in relief and walked outside and thanked God for his provision. We took our son recently, a couple of years ago, and we redid that pilgrimage. We took him to the hospital and went upstairs to the heart unit, and then we went looking for the curio store in Japantown. We think we found it. We're not sure. It's changed in 30 years. But the third place is Big Moody Curve. If you've ever lived in the, in the Bay Area, you know about Big Moody Curve. It's the curve in the road between Santa Clara and San Jose going to Santa Cruz. It's where traffic backs up. 
You go into that curve, and the redwoods just jump out at you. It's beautiful. It's a tight turn. Our second son, on the third day of his life, we were told he would not make it. And as I drove into uh, that curve, I looked at the redwoods and I shot up a prayer to God and I said, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away, blessed be your name. That was my mother's prayer when she told me she had pancreatic cancer. So I figured it was the best prayer for her grandson. We take a pilgrimage periodically to Big Billy Curve and remember what God did. Because we prayed all night and we got a call and said, he's good. And both those boys have been healthy as horses since those days. (laughs) Hardly spent a, a lick on them in health care. But there's their places. And then the second memorials of people. The joy of the people is, the joy of the ministry is all the people you meet, folk like you, who in the course of 40 years crush your path, and who get to tell you their story. And you get to have a very privileged place in their lives. You've just had a pastor of 33 years who knows all of the joys of that. There's people who, when I see them, we only have to look at each other and we know what we're saying to each other. Because we share stories, they're memorials, because they remind me what God's done in their lives. They're powerful. I just recorded a video for one of my friends who just died. I couldn't go down for the funeral, so TJ recorded something for me, and it was played Friday. He was a very special person in my life. Whenever I needed help, he always showed up. He signed up for everything that had to do with outreach because he believed the world needed to know about Jesus. The third are experiences. People and experiences. I love to travel. I love to travel because of all of the experiences and how it's enriched my life. I think about a group of ladies in a straw hut in northern Uganda, who tell me that one day they were inside the hut praying and the Lord's resistance army surrounded them. What the Lord's resistance army would do to women like that in a hut was that they would set the boys in to rape them. They'd often send the mother's own children in to rape them because They knew once they had the shame, they had control of the kids. These ladies tell me that they got down on their knees and they prayed. And the army just passed on through. 
Man, when you hear that story, and you know the other stories, that's changing. Or a man in the Carpathian Mountains of Transylvania who one day told me his story. He'd come to faith in communism late in life. And he was told that uh, because of this, he was going to pay, and he was going to pay big time. And he looked at the party official who said to him that, and he said to him this, how much lower can you demote me? I empty the sewerage of this town. Your ideology has oppressed my spirit, ravaged my country and my soul, and limited any opportunity I've ever had. Christ and Christianity has liberated my soul, changed my outlook, and guaranteed to me eternal life. Why would I not accept that offer? And his face radiated as he told me that. As I went into the darkness of Transylvania that night from that meeting, his face was etched in my memory. I can see him now. Powerful testimony. It's a memorial to who God is and what God does. Or there's mementos. If you go into any of the pastor's offices here, you'll see mementos. Jeff's got a few in his office. Wouldn't win the decoration award, my friend. But most of us, our offices wouldn't. But but the things mean special things. They mark special moments. Pastor Brian has the same, and Pastor Jim has the same, and Pastor Doug has the same. Matthew has the same. Because they tell stories about people and things that God has done. I had to dismantle my office when I retired. That was really hard to do. And I didn't have enough space at home for everything. But there's a bamboo vase that I kept. And it was given to me by a young couple, a young Korean couple. She was an architect, he was a stockbroker, and he had a gambling addiction, and he became a day trader. Can you imagine that? They were doing really well for themselves as a broker and as an architect, and he gambled everything away. They lost everything. And he ran away in shame. And he went to his uncle in Hawaii. And his uncle called me and said, Paul, how do we put this back together again? And he came back and we had a family meeting, an intervention, and we talked. And for two years, he rode a push bike in Portland to get to work. You know how wet it can be in Portland? And you know how cold it can be in Portland. But 
but he did it. And they got themselves out of debt. They repaid everything. And they gave me the vase to remind me that they were now as strong as bamboo because of what God had done. On a discouraging day, I'd look at that vase and remember who God is and what he's done. Okay? When the children ask you, what do the stones mean? Do you have stories to tell them? About places? About people? About experiences? About mementos? What do the stones mean? Who is God and what, God, and what has God done? A few years ago, a teacher encouraged me to come up with a metaphor for my life. And so I um, came up with a swing. By the way, kids, you cannot come up and use this. It is not safe. Okay? But in order for a swing to work, you know what you've got to do? You've got to lean back and kick forward, don't you? The metaphor for me was to lean back, leaning back on who God is and what God has done in my life. 66 years and nearly 60 years of faith, there's a lot to recall. Lean back into his promises and into his faithfulness and kick forward, kick forward into the future. Powerful. Israel got to lean back on all that God had done and was now kicking forward into the promised land, weren't they? That's what those stones mean. God's been faithful and you can trust that faithfulness and go forward. For myself, retirement's fun. And, and pastoring in retirement is easier than pastoring before retirement. Because it doesn't matter if you don't like me anymore. <laughs> you know, just, just saying. <laughs> Wished I had a thought about that earlier. Might have been more effective. But you lean back in God's promises and you kick forward into the future. These have been wonderful months here with you guys. They really have. You've been delightful. So encouraging. Been good for the soul. See what God's doing and what he will do. Now as a church, think about the swing for you going forward. You've been in this community since 1908. You know, Kennewick's became a city in 1904. It was incorporated. There were 1,200 people in Kennewick in 1910. And South Hills Church, or then First Baptist Church at Kennewick, had some of those people. 
You've been here that long, 113 years in this community. That's a lot of faithfulness. So it was amusing to me in some ways why we were so upset about all that had gone on during COVID. God had been with you for 113 years. Do you think he was going to abandon you then? That's the beauty of having that sort of history. You've got all of this faithfulness to rely upon, to lean back into, and to kick forward. In 113 years, do you know how many changes you, that this church has seen? There was only 10,000 people here when Hanford kicked in. And that exploded it. There was about 2,000 people here in 1940. 10,000 by the time the end of the war. In 1980, you thought the last person out of town turned off the lights. And look at it today. Double the size of the population then. God's got a future for this place. It's powerful. You get to lean back into the promises of God and his faithfulness and his power and kick forward into this future. A wonderful, wonderful future. South Hills Church, can I ask you to be a kid again and enjoy the swing? Enjoy the swing. Lean back into the promises and kick forward into the future. Does that sound exciting? Yes. Come on, church. That was not... <laughs> what do the stones mean? Yes! Because God will be faithful. He's promised to be present with you. He's promised his power and his presence, hasn't he? What do the stones mean? They remain that God's faithful and you can rely on his promises.